Our study of Revelation chapter 1 continues, and it continues at verse 12. Revelation 1, verse 12. We'll read verses 12 to 20. And I heard, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write therefore the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We know from this passage, from the evident description within the passage that he's describing a vision of Jesus Christ, it especially becomes clear in verses 17 and 18 when he says, that he's the first and the last, the living one, he was dead, and now he's alive forevermore. This is a description of Jesus Christ. Let's see how he is described here in verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. The voice that was speaking to him was behind, so he has to turn and and see who it was speaking to him. And then he says in verse 12, And having turned, I saw... Seven golden lampstands. This is the first thing that's evident and clear to him. He sees seven golden lampstands. From verse 20, we know that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands represent the seven churches that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3. Churches of Asia or Asia Minor, Western Asia in modern Turkey. These are the golden lampstands. He sees the lampstands in their shining and uh, while they are lit. And then someone in the middle of them. 13 says, And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. This one like a son of man is in the middle of the lampstands, indicating the fact that he is present. He's there and he knows what's happening among them. Just as Jesus said, Behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20, he is with his people wherever they are, whether they are there individually or whether they are there corporately. He is in the midst of them. And in this way, he is signifying the fact that he's there. He's in the middle of these churches. This is one like a son of man. One like a son of man. Notice how it says, like a son of man. This phrase actually first occurs in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel the prophet saw a vision of Christ and he called him one 
like a son of man. He's like a son of man in that he has a human nature. However, he has a perfect and sinless human nature. And he comes in human form in order to die on the cross for our sins. So he sees this same individual. He sees Christ, one like a son of man. It's a clear reference back to Daniel 7.13, a vision of Messiah or Christ coming in the future. And here in verse 13, he is clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle, a, a golden girdle or sash across his breast. The robe reaches to the feet and the sash or girdle is across his breast. Now notice that the high priest in the Old Testament, like Exodus chapter 28, he wore a, a long robe. He wore a robe that went all the way down to his ankles. This is especially the case as it's translated in the Greek Old Testament or the Septuagint of Exodus 28, 5 and 6. In the Hebrew text, it doesn't say that explicitly, but the Greek Old Testament does say that explicitly, that the robe of the high priest went all the way down to the ankles. And so he is describing Christ here as a high priest. He's describing Christ as one who has accomplished our mediation. Christ has already done what is necessary as the high priest of God to minister on our behalf so that he might represent us to God. He represents us to God. He has uh, this robe that's fully clothing him because perfectly and completely he has the holiness of God and the righteousness of God that he reckons to us and he presents us to God in his name. Because of the work he's done, he has fully completed our redemption. And also this golden girdle about his breast. He is the one with this golden girdle. Gold represents the royal nature of this priesthood. It's a royal priesthood as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. It's a royal priesthood and he deserves to be on the throne and to have all that is associated with glory, with royalty, and with a rule over his people. Verse 14, it says, And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. The hair of his head is described as being like white wool or white like snow, like the pure snow. This signifies the fact that Jesus is eternal. He is aged, like old men have gray hair. But in this sense, it's signifying his eternality, that he exists forever. But also, the gray head signifies wisdom. The one who is old usually has more wisdom than the one who's young. So he has this wisdom or knowledge that is his and his alone, that he has uniquely because of who he is in his being and who he is in his virtue. He has this wisdom that no one else has. Verse 14, And his eyes were like a flame of fire. He has eyes like a flame of fire. To have eyes like a flame of fire is also mentioned in chapter 2, Revelation 2 and verse 18, where it says, 
that, uh, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. He has eyes like a flame of fire. And then Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. When he returns in judgment, notice what it says. We'll read Revelation 19, 11 and 12. 19, 11 and 12. And I saw heaven opened. Revelation 19, verses 11 and 12. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And in verse 13, his, his name is the Word of God. He's describing Christ. There it says his eyes are a flame of fire. Fire, as it tests precious metals, and as it separates the pure metal from the dross and all the alloys, all of the impurities, Jesus' eyes are eyes of discernment, eyes of omniscience, eyes that know what is happening throughout the whole earth and even what's happening in His church. And what's going to happen on the Day of Judgment is He will use His eyes, His omniscient eyes, His purifying eyes, the eyes of fire that test everyone. And if we're of gold, we will last. We'll last forever. Otherwise, if we are stubble, wood, hay, and straw, like that, we will pass away and perish forever. Verse 15. 15 also at the beginning and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. His feet are like burnished bronze that have been caused to grow. They are hot from the fire of the furnace. Bronze, when it's put into the furnace, also will come out glowing and burnished or shiny. It will come out like that. This, too, is showing the reliability of his judgment, the reliability and steadfastness of his ability to judge and go wherever he wants to go in order to uphold his judgment. Verse 15 also says, His voice was like the sound of many waters. The sound of many waters, like rushing, turbulent waters. Chapter 19, verse 6 Chapter 19, verse 6 makes a parallel, and we understand its meaning from Revelation 19, 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. When the scriptures are describing the sound of many waters, it's equated to the sound of mighty peals of thunder. When we hear loud splashing waters or loud thunder, it calls our attention. It's a commanding sound. It deserves our attention so that we listen to whatever is being said. And this is the point here, that he is about to speak, and John, as well as all of us, should listen. We should listen to this authoritative commanding voice. Verse 16, 
And in his right hand, he held seven stars. In his right hand. Usually in the scriptures, such as Isaiah 43.10, the right hand is the hand of strength. The right, usually, for most people, the right hand is stronger than the left hand. So in the Bible, the right hand signifies strength. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the seven stars, in verse 20, Revelation 1.20, it says, These are the angels of the seven churches. He has control, power, to sustain and protect the angels of the seven churches. He's not out of control. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's God Almighty. Power to control and to protect His seven stars. They're in His right hand. You may, may also recall in John chapter 10, Jesus described both the Father and Himself as having His church in their hand. He says in John chapter 10, 1027, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There the Father and the Son have the church in their hand to protect them and also to control their destinies. Verse 16, Revelation 1.16 further says, And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is also said again in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12, Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Verse 16, 2, 16. Repent therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. With the sword of my mouth. Well, what is this sword of my mouth? What will he do with it? Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 15. Revelation 19, 15. This also describes Christ. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And also, Revelation 19, 21, verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. He's describing here, the apostle is describing, this two-edged sword that comes out of Christ's mouth as a powerful word. Jesus, with his mouth, has a powerful word that can do whatever he wants, fully, completely, and it is lethal. It's doubly lethal because it's sharp on both sides. And he can cut this way or that way to do whatever he wants to those who disobey him, to those who practice wickedness, to those who refuse to believe in his gospel. He has this powerful word that will be lethal to everyone who receives the negative effects of that word. Then, Revelation 1.16 further says, And his face 
was like the sun shining in its strength. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is signifying the fact that he is worthy, uh, he, he is glorious and he is worthy of our worship. He is glorious and worthy of our worship. In Matthew chapter 17, we have the incidents of the transfiguration. The, the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. This is what happens. And then it says in verse 6, after they hear the voice of God, verse 6, And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. They fell on their faces when they saw Jesus transfigured and they heard the voice of God the Father. It caused them to fall down on their faces in terror. In the same way, the glory of God, His brilliant radiance, is depicted in the Bible in order for us to know that He's worthy of our worship, He's worthy of our fear, and everything that we have should be given to Him. Just like the sun is um, unmatched in its glory, the noonday sun, in the same way Christ is unmatched in His glory. So, naturally, verse 17, Revelation 1.17, After He sees all of these symbols and signs illustrating the character of Christ, John is reminded by those symbols, and notice what happens in verse 17, And when I saw Him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. When he saw Christ, he fell at Christ's feet as a dead man. He understood this imagery. He understood it very well. And he knew who was there in front of him. And it caused him to fall at the feet of Christ. It's not a new thing that prophets and apostles fall at the feet of the Lord. This has happened many times in the Old Testament, and it happens a few times in the New Testament. Remember that when Jacob wrestled with the Lord, he was amazed that he remained alive. He says, have I remained alive? I have seen God face to face, and he expected to die. Genesis 32:30. Gideon, when Gideon saw the Lord, he also was amazed that he remained alive and he thought he would die in Judges chapter 6, 22 to 23. Manoah, the father of Samson, Manoah, the father of Samson in Judges 13, 22, he also was amazed that he didn't die. He expected to die any moment and then his wife had to correct him. No, no, the Lord did not intend to put you to death. If he did, he wouldn't have told you all this and you're still alive. So he didn't intend to put you to death. He intended to arouse fear in you and worship, but not death. We might recall also Daniel. When Daniel saw visions of the Lord, such as Daniel chapter 8, 17 and 10, 15, Daniel also fell. His demeanor became pale. He became sick. He became exhausted. He fell down on his face. This is what happened when Daniel saw visions of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet, 
perhaps one of the most common ones that we know. Isaiah the prophet saw a vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. And when he saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah also saw Christ in Isaiah 6, as John tells us in John 12, 38 to 43. And even in Matthew 17, where we were just there, it says in 17, 6, Matthew 17, 6, And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. They fell on their faces and were much afraid. Remember when Jesus performed the miracle of the fish after the, the disciples didn't catch anything, and then Jesus performed that miracle in Luke chapter 5, Simon Peter saw a glimpse of the glory of Christ with that miracle, and he falls down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He too recognized the glory of Christ, and he recognized that Christ needed to depart from him, otherwise he might be consumed. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And one more example we may observe is in Acts chapter 26 when Paul was on the road to Damascus Christ miraculously appeared to him and he at that time also he appeared in a glorious form and it says in, in Acts 26 14 Acts 26 14 and when we had fallen all fallen to the ground I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Even the apostle, at the time of his conversion, fell down when he saw the Lord. So, it's natural for John to see Christ like this, to understand his attributes, to know who's there before him, and then to fall at his feet as a dead man. Well, Christ comforts him. Revelation 1.17, it says, And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He assures John that there should be no fear because God, uh, God through Christ, does not intend to consume John at this time. He does not intend to do so. He intends to comfort him. Yes, he needs to be reawakened or reacquainted with the glory of Christ and his own sinfulness, but he's not to be consumed. In fact, Christ is going to show his favor to him and give him words, words of the Holy Spirit and words of eternal life, words of perseverance, words of the gospel so that he might write them and record them for us. Do not be afraid. This too is what the Lord does on occasion when he is there in front of us or in front of his people to comfort us. That too is what he said in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, after the disciples fell on their faces and were afraid, it says in 17.7, And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. Arise and do not 
be afraid. So he says the same to John. There's no need to fear when God is present. Verse 17 continues. Christ explains himself, who he is. I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. This phrase is similar to other places in the book, such as Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, as well in Revelation chapter 21, 21 and verse 6, where it says, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. As well as Revelation 22.13, 22.13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These phrases, especially, I am the first and the last, they come from Isaiah. Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, 6 and 48, 12, a couple of places, he, he, there he is describing who the Lord is and the Lord calls himself the first and the last. That is, he is the only God. There was no God before God and there will be no God after God. In fact, in Isaiah 43.10, he says it in those words. Isaiah 43.10, he describes who he is there. He says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Only the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and even Christ Himself being the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons, one God, so Christ can identify Himself by this term, the first and the last, to describe who He is. There's no one before him, and there's none after him either. He's the only God, only true God. Verse 18, And the living one, and the living one. He's the true God, but he's the living God. There are dead gods, there are dead idols. Idols or statues that are worshipped by men, they are dead. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. That's the way they are. They have mouths, but they don't eat, even though their worshipers bring sacrifices to them and put them right there in front of them. They don't eat it. The rats and the rodents eat them, but they don't eat them. And even the priests eat them, but they don't eat them. God, their gods are dead gods, but Christ is the living God. He is the living and true God. And therefore, He ought to be worshipped. And he says further in verse 18, And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I was dead. Yes, he died. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. He was crucified, but also resurrected. No one else was crucified like this and resurrected for our sins. When he was resurrected, he arose immortally. He arose with a body 
no longer susceptible to death. That's why he says, I am alive. Behold, notice, I am alive forevermore. He will not die again. Everyone else will die once, and even a few in the Bible die twice. Because when they rose from the dead, such as Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, and others, like the widows in the time of Elijah and Elisha, their sons, um, the, the son of the widow in 1 Kings 17, and actually the other one whose both parents were alive in 2 Kings, this, these sons, they were raised from the dead, but they also died again, but not in the case of Christ. He is the firstborn of the dead, as it says in Revelation 1.5. He's the firstborn, the first one uniquely to rise immortally. Therefore, he is unique and special, and he has authority that he can give to us. He can delegate to us in due time. But notice what kind of authority he has in verse 18. I have the keys of death and of Hades. I have the keys of death and of Hades. He has the keys of death. If he wants someone to die, he will die. And if he wants someone to live, he will live. Jesus has this authority to put to death and also to bring back to life. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. 39. 32-39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. No one can deliver from God's hand. He has the power of life and death. There is no other God. So, Christ is saying he has this kind of power to give life and also to take it away. He also has the power to send people to Hades. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Hades is, the, is a place in the afterlife. He has the authority to send people there. They don't go there just because it is a part of God's plan and then God just winds up the clock and then certain things happen. No. God intentionally sends people to Hades. Well, ultimately, in whose power is it? Christ is saying, He has the keys of Hades. He has the ability to send people to Hades or not. Why does He say all of this? Why does John need to know all this? And why do we need to know all this? We need to know all this because John is being persecuted. John could be put to death. John is here receiving this word to encourage him, but also for him to encourage the churches. The seven churches in his period, as well as others who will receive this book, but also to all the churches throughout history. What do we need to know when we have afflictions? What do we need to know when we're persecuted? What do we need to know when somebody is threatening to put us to death? We need to know Christ. We need to know His ministry. 
We need to know His power. We need to have His blood reckoned to our account for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to believe in His death and His resurrection. We need to believe in the immortality that He, he has and can provide for us. No matter what they do to us in our bodies, one day we'll rise from the dead. We should be hopeful. We should be joyful. We should be peaceful. We should have all of these virtues within us because we know who Christ is. Therefore, the solution to any kind of anxiety, the solution to any kind of fears, fears of man, fear of death, fear of Satan, the solution to all of that is to look to Christ. Christ and Christ alone. If we believe in Him, have faith in Him, that will sustain us. That's why John is told all of this. Then verses 19 and 20 He is commanded to write. He's commanded again. He was told already in verse 11 to write, write in a book. And now again in verse 19, after this vision and during the end of this vision, write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. The things which you have seen, the things which he has seen in this chapter, who Christ is, and a reminder of his person and his ministry. This is what he is to write. He's also to write of the things which are. The things which are are those things which describe the condition of the churches represented in chapters 2 and 3. Those are the things which are. That's what is currently happening in John's life. And then he says, and the things which shall take place after these things. What will take place after John's day? What will take place between John's day and the return of Christ? And that's what we have predominantly in the rest of the book. In the rest of the book of Revelation, things that will happen future to John. Verse 20. Here we have an interpretation. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, The mystery of the seven stars. It's called a mystery because he presented it in an illustration. Seven stars. He presented it in an illustration or in an enigma. Enigma or illustration. So naturally, in order to ensure we properly understand the symbol, the enigma, interpretations are necessary. And this is why we have to read within context, such as this, within the very verse it says, that the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, they are explained as seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, the stars are the angels, the lampstands are the churches. There we have it. The equation is given right there in verse 20. Sometimes the scriptures will give us the interpretation within the verse, or within the paragraph, within the chapter. Sometimes it'll give us the interpretation in another part of the book, and we've seen some of that by cross-referencing within the book of Revelation. And then sometimes the Bible will explain the meaning of a symbol in another part of the Bible. And therefore, wherever we find these descriptions, we should search the scriptures to see what the meaning is, and then the mystery will become clear. The mystery, in many cases, is not intended for us. For us, all of these things are intended for us to be understood. But in the past, sometimes the mysteries 
were kept a mystery for a period of time. But in our case, these mysteries are unfolding. That's why it's called the book of Revelation. Revelation, the revealing of things, things to John to convey to us. That's the key to the interpretation. One of the keys to the interpretation of this book and other parts of the Bible, any other part of the Bible, compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture with Scripture. Theologians call it the analogy of Scripture. Take one part and compare it to another part because all of Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit through His holy prophets and apostles. So the Holy Spirit will not contradict Himself. Because He will not contradict Himself, we ought to see what He says is the meaning of this or that from other parts of Scripture, wherever we have the same context, the same symbol, so forth. This is the practice that we should have, especially from this time forward as we read the book of Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.